have some claims, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. That we can't breathe? I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. We cannot let this evil continue. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. Welcome back to this special series of WarPod, Reckoning with 9-11, brought to you by Safer World, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. Looking back, 20 years on, at the impacts of 9-11 across the world, we look at the conflicts that emerged in response, the legal and security reforms that changed people's lives and societies, the impacts on our culture and our politics. We hear from people who have experienced the ripple effects, as well as experts who documented and analyzed them. Episode 2 is called Into the Land of Bones. In it, we look at the first country to be targeted in the war on terror that began after 9-11, Afghanistan, which is still reeling from the consequences of 9-11 even today. Into the Land of Bones is actually the title of a book by classic scholar Frank Holt. In it, Holt charts the parallel journeys of world powers into a land that has been a graveyard to many empires. As we recorded this episode, every day we heard new updates on Taliban advances through Afghan territory. After 20 years of war and stabilization efforts, the Taliban that ruled the country in 2001 are back in power. Before the United States, NATO and other allies came here, Afghanistan had been invaded by the Soviets, the British, the Mughals and Tamerlane. Before them came Genghis Khan and the White Huns. The first Western superpower to pass through here was in fact Alexander the Great. The ability of such would-be rulers to establish a functioning state has varied, but between each era of calm, as Holt writes, we find an era of ruin, where the population has asserted its self-reliance. When British invaders arrived in 1838, 15,000 soldiers came with 38,000 servants, brass bands, bagpipes, foxhounds, and a train of 30,000 camels. Officers in one regiment had two camels just to carry their cigars. The invaders of 1838 rapidly assumed control, but within three years determined local opponents hit back, assassinating a puppet installed by the British and chasing 15,000 troops and camp followers on a death march out of the country. And the Soviet Union tried to install a friendly ruler in the country just over a century later. They were also slowly bled out here. Osama bin Laden was one of the heroes of this war of attrition, with members of volunteer militias, the Mujahideen, drawing support via Pakistan from the Gulf and the United States. Before the Soviets entered Afghanistan in 1979, Leonid Brezhnev boasted that it will be over in three or four weeks. But by 1986, Soviet President Gorbachev was referring to Afghanistan as a bleeding wound. It was a losing struggle that would claim 13,800 Soviet lives. Echoing past invaders, successive US presidents have asserted that their determination to prevail in Afghanistan would endure. But optimism and determination has again given way to exhaustion and retreat. So how did it come to this? We've heard how Osama bin Laden believed if he could just get the US to invade Afghanistan, it would be his chance to bleed the US in the way he and others had worn out the Soviets in the 1980s. But is that what happened? And if so, how did it all go so wrong? I am Delina Gojo. And I am Larry Atri. Joining us in this episode to discuss the long war in Afghanistan will be journalist Steve Cole and the Afghan peace and justice expert Huma Saeed. Reckoning with 9-11 So, after President Bush issued that ultimatum to the Taliban in September 2001, the Taliban responded a week later. They condemned the September 11th attacks. They were prepared to investigate, but they weren't convinced al-Qaeda was to blame. Osama bin Laden was an ally of theirs, and al-Qaeda had helped them take over the country. They weren't going to give them up. The US moved fast. By 7th of October 2001, less than a month after the 9-11 attacks, the invasion had begun. The US used overwhelming force. In 76 consecutive days of bombing, it dropped 17,500 bombs. 
The world's only superpower would be joined in its war and reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan by a total of 58 other allies, more than a quarter of the world's countries. There was little inkling at the outset that things could go wrong and what the challenges would be. Two of the best books on this war have been written by Steve Cole, a Pulitzer Prize-winning chronicler of US engagement in Afghanistan from the late 1970s to the present day. Steve, it's clear from your books, Ghost Wars and Directorate S, that there was no single reason why US efforts went so wrong in Afghanistan. But do you think it would be fair to say that one of the first mistakes was assuming it would be too easy to get rid of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and just let freedom reign? Yes, I, th- I mean, a version of that. I think the United States and its allies that went into Afghanistan you know, they didn't have much of a plan. They were reacting to the shock of September 11th, and they were moving at full speed. And the overthrow of the Taliban in the fall of 2001 happened really quickly uh, for a war. It was over by uh, December after a late September, early October start. And I think the United States, for its part, found itself standing in the liberated city of Kabul and asking itself, now what, without a lot of preparation after that moment. And that began a period uh, that was characterized by two things. One, what you refer to, a kind of hubris. Uh, Well, we defeated the Taliban. Um, That shows uh, that they were kind of a paper tiger and never the fearsome quasi-totalitarian movement that they seem to be, and and also a period of drift about what NATO's intentions in Afghanistan were. George W. Bush ran for the presidency in 2000 on a platform that included explicit denunciations of what he called nation-building. That was his mindset. There was a lot of skepticism at the top, and that affected the level of U.S. investment during 2002, 2003. It also led the Bush administration as the war in Iraq approached to try to push the Afghanistan project off on its NATO allies. And maybe the most important thing about the skepticism in the Bush administration toward nation building was just the sheer level of investment. I mean, remember, Afghanistan in December 2001 had been shattered by more than 20 years of continuous warfare. It wasn't just a poor country. It was at the very bottom of the World Bank or UN Human Development Index tables. The skeptical Bush administration made you know, quite limited investments in comparison to the need. So there was a misunderstanding of the level of need and the investment required. Can you expand more for us on the fact that the US and NATO objectives in Afghanistan weren't clear? Yeah, I think the greatest source of confusion right from um, the end of 2001 until today was uh, the question of the Taliban and whether they were an enemy of uh, the United States and its and its NATO allies, an enemy on par with al-Qaeda, or if distinct from al-Qaeda, then why were they an enemy and what could be done about them? Uh, many of its leaders had fled into Pakistan. And yet some of them uh, approached leaders associated with the new uh, chairman of the interim government, Hamid Karzai, and they said, look, um, this isn't the first time that uh, power has changed hands in Afghanistan recently, and we have uh, essentially accepted that uh, you're in charge, but we would like uh, to play a role. And there were talks beginning, and... uh, I think from an Afghan perspective, this was a normal thing to do, share power after a decisive outcome of a military campaign. But the Bush administration wasn't interested. Why should they deal with the Taliban, this highly unattractive regime that had violated human rights and really challenged the world's norms about what a state and its relationship with its people should be? Why should we deal with them? Why should we compromise? Not anticipating that the Taliban were, uh, however repugnant, um, a part of Afghanistan and might fight their way back, the Bush administration declared the Taliban to be essentially the equivalent of al-Qaeda, rounded them up, uh, took them to Guantanamo by the dozen, um, allowed bounty hunters to run around Afghanistan snatching 
Taliban leaders, in some cases, Taliban leaders who came to meetings for good faith discussions about political reconciliation. And this certainly got the attention of the surviving Taliban leadership uh, that this was a war to the end and that the United States would not compromise. Yes. So as discussed in episode one, when you're involved in a war on terror between good and evil, it doesn't really allow much political way out for either side. Is that how you'd see it? In Afghanistan, the war on terror framing was a constraint because it led the Bush administration and many of its allies to um, lose interest in what uh, distinctions there might be between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. The Taliban were lumped in with al-Qaeda, listed as, you know, essentially a terrorist organization right from the start. But over time, even over the next several years, 2004, 2005, uh, some elements of the Taliban reached out to Kabul, to the Karzai administration, and, and said, well, can we, can we come in from the cold? And the Karzai administration started to negotiate returns, but there was no backing, really. Uh, the United Nations uh, political office was interested. Gradually, European governments, Britain became more interested in it in principle. But the Bush administration was still very resistant to it. And meantime, the Taliban leadership enjoying sanctuary in Pakistan, but also watching the, the failure of the Karzai administration to deliver on some of the initial optimism and promises, uh, started to plot its own comeback. And when it surfaced as a revived force, of course, the Bush administration immediately saw its revival as a military challenge and and proceeded that way, escalating the war year by year until it was a full-blown insurgency and counterinsurgency. I want to move a little bit closer to the ground now. So in Directorate S, you explain in detail how the US increasingly lost patience and support of the Afghan people. And you talk about this descent of American counterterrorism policy into black depths of systematic abuse. Could you tell us more? Well, from the beginning, the United States was determined to treat anyone, um, not only who had participated in 9-11 or related operations, but really anyone who had been in Afghanistan as part of a listed international terrorist organization as a, essentially as a listed terrorist. And the Bush administration uh, developed a initially partially secret regime of detention and torture that it applied to individuals that it believed to be connected with al-Qaeda Uh, The original justification was that some of these individuals might know about plots that were underway that could lead to another shattering attack on the scale of 9-11. But even after that no longer seemed plausible, the system of detention, secret detention, uh, harsh interrogation, waterboarding, and the rest continued. And in Afghanistan, this regime that was originally designed to target a relatively small universe of known al-Qaeda operatives uh, began to be applied to ordinary Afghans who would get caught up in various sweeps, individuals would be subject to interrogation, and word spread around Afghanistan uh, as these detainees uh, were abused, as they were released, as they spoke to relatives that you know, the U.S. methods were dark and even comparable to the notorious methods of the Soviet KGB during the 1980s. There were a lot of uh, sergeants and inexperienced intelligence case officers who were given enormous responsibility in Afghanistan and in 2002-2003, abused their authority in some instances. In one case, um, a serving CIA officer contractor was um, committed to murder for which he was later convicted in a United States court. And who was paying attention? By the time things really started to get uh, dark and pervasive in Afghanistan, the United States had turned its attention to the war in Iraq. This was also a conflict in which drone strikes came to the fore and became much more talked about in the public. Could you briefly explain the benefits and the costs that they had in both Afghanistan and Pakistan? Well, 
Drone warfare technology arose in Afghanistan um, after 9-11 with the first use of armed drones to attack ground targets by the CIA in October of 2001. At that time, the technology was still in its infancy, but very quickly, the United States manufactured more drones and tested and perfected the ability of operators to hover over targets and then fire more precisely at buildings and individuals than even um, precision weapons dropped from an airplane could do. The drones were also part of a surveillance operation in Afghanistan and allowed uh, the United States to try to keep track of where al-Qaeda might be after they fled uh, the initial assault. The Taliban and some elements of al-Qaeda had taken shelter across the border in Pakistan, and the U.S. and its allies didn't want to invade Pakistan. They thought that drone warfare could allow them to challenge the Taliban and al-Qaeda leaders who were using Pakistan as a sanctuary to, to kill them, to disrupt them, uh, and to prevent them from infiltrating into Afghanistan and attacking Kabul and attacking cities in the east and so on. It was politically sensitive because the Pakistanis were unhappy about it. Sometimes they accepted the U.S. drone strikes grudgingly because the U.S. was striking al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda allies who were also attacking Pakistan. And other times the Pakistanis felt humiliated by the campaign, they weren't consulted adequately, and they didn't like all the targets that the U.S struck. Call it secret because it was classified under the U.S. system, but it was a secret in plain sight. In Pakistan, everybody knew where they were operating. So it was an air war with hundreds of documented victims, quite a lot of uh, dispute right from the beginning about whether the victims were guerrillas, um, mostly guerrillas, uh, in some cases entirely innocent individuals who had been mistaken for guerrillas. I think there's plenty of evidence that all three categories um, can be seen in the list of those who were killed by drone strikes. But it also did become a propaganda war as well because Pakistanis used the unpopularity of the American drone strikes to discredit uh, the United States and, and its NATO allies, not only in the eyes of the Pakistani population, but also to try to point out that the Afghan war itself was going badly and that the United States was just making it worse with its escalating militarism. So you can see why with those civilian casualties and the abuse that you've talked about, America's counterterrorism approach was proving unpopular. But also the allies the US was working with in Afghanistan were themselves corrupt and predatory and behaving badly towards the population. And that was a big factor in why hearts and minds were never really won by the US and its allies in Afghanistan. This, from your work, is clearly a problem the US recognised, but it found it hard to remedy. It wasn't possible to put it above other priorities at times. And also, the US faced the dilemma that if you remove a corrupt ally, they turn against you. But if you stick with them, you lose the people. So can you explain more? I think in the early period, the emphasis was on security and fighting al-Qaeda. And so the warlords that the United States had lashed itself to during the, the war in the fall of 2001 uh, remained a priority for the Bush administration. The CIA had, had most of those relationships, and it made the case, look, um, we're still hunting for al-Qaeda. We need these militias. Um, there's no other way uh, to get the work done. By 2003, 2004, the arguments started to shift. And Zalmay Khalilzad, who was an early U.S. ambassador uh, to Kabul, thought that in order to build up the credibility of the Afghan government, you had to reduce the power of these independent warlords, many of them CIA clients. And as nation building, to use the tainted phrase, uh, began to advance 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, and the agenda for the Afghan government broadened to include issues like accountability and human rights, then the contradiction that had been there from the beginning of harboring these militia groups and never holding them accountable for the abuses that they had carried out in the past or that they were continuing to carry out in many cases 
it became quite a visible contradiction for Afghans themselves. Uh, even those Afghans who were sympathetic to the NATO project and who benefited from the improvements of access to healthcare and education in the cities, at least, even they, you know, started to recognize, well, wait a second, you're telling us that you want us to build this society that's at least inspired by your own ideals, but you're not willing to compromise yourself uh, about your relationships with these uh, warlords with, with records of terrible abuse. And the U.S. could never really resolve that contradiction. Yes, it tried to build up an institutional Afghan military and police force so that it, it wouldn't need these uh, militias, but it never was able to do that successfully. So speaking of partners that are very challenging, I suppose the most important aspect of what went wrong was the difficulty for the US of understanding, but also influencing Pakistan's agenda. Yes, I mean, Pakistan had been one of three governments in the world to recognize the Taliban emirate. And um, its army had made clear throughout the 90s that while it didn't always support the Taliban's policies or certainly its harsh interpretations of Islam, nonetheless, Pakistan benefited from the Taliban's hostility to India. And also, Pakistan needed stability in Afghanistan. So these were Pakistan's interests on 9-11. But when uh, the United States first started to grapple with Pakistan's uh, role after 9-11, the leader of the country, President Pervez Musharraf, an army general, persuaded the United States that he would really join the United States in its war on terror. And, um, you know, for the first few years after 9-11, the Pakistanis were quite cooperative about the American priority, which was al-Qaeda, that is to say, non-Afghan, often Arab, but other Chechen and Uzbek al-Qaeda members or allies suspected of carrying out a direct terrorist strikes. And the Pakistanis would round these guys up and hand them over to the Americans. And the Americans were very happy with the relationship. Uh, it was really only about 2005, 2006, when the Taliban revived themselves from Pakistani soil and started to make themselves felt again as, a, as an insurgent force in Afghanistan, that the Bush administration said, wait a second, President Musharraf, you told us that uh, you were with us. Now, why aren't you doing something about the Taliban comparable to the help you've given us about al-Qaeda? And, uh, well, Musharraf said, essentially, it's complicated because, in fact, Musharraf and the generals that he uh, led at the top of the Pakistani system, they had a view that the Taliban really were not the same as al-Qaeda, whereas these um, global terrorists, you know, who were, who were from other countries far away, they were dispensable. The Taliban was essential to Pakistan's own security. And that's where relations with Pakistan really started to break down. And it just got worse and worse. So that really is one of the issues which the US kept going back to and looking at again. It could never really resolve in its approach to Afghanistan. And I think you, your book, Director at S, brilliantly documents, in fact, how the US neglected several issues that it needed to address. Can you talk to us more about how the US misread the situation? What does the US defense and foreign policy establishment need to learn from Afghanistan? Well, so many things, but I think, you know, particularly in the era um, of the second Bush term and the first Obama term, so talking about the years, say, from 2006 to 2012, which was the deadliest part of the war, the United States, uh, through its military leadership, sort of persuaded itself of, a, of an approach to the war in Afghanistan um, through the framework of counterinsurgency, which was a doctrine that had been neglected in the United States Army after Vietnam, but which uh, General David Petraeus revived uh, first in Iraq. And what did this mean for Afghans? It meant a couple of things. First, a counterinsurgency doctrine required an enormous escalation of the number of troops fighting the Taliban. President Obama, who was pretty sure he knew this wasn't going to work very well, nonetheless felt pressured to go forward to escalate U.S. troop levels in Afghanistan above 100,000 within two years of taking office. The total international force in Afghanistan swelled to 150,000 or so 
Now, this theory of war also assumed that the Afghan government would be legitimized by the security created by these 150,000 international forces, even though these forces were running checkpoints that Afghans dreaded to pass through, even though these forces were turning up in villages at night on raids for Taliban leaders, knocking down doors, handcuffing people, taking them to local military bases for detention. I mean, the idea that rural counterinsurgency in Afghanistan would win the hearts and minds of the Afghans seemed a fantasy right from the start, certainly to the soldiers on the ground who were fighting it. The ones who actually went into the villages and saw the hostility, saw the blowback, uh, understood why local Afghans were hostile to them. They knew that this doctrine was not likely to produce the effects that the generals insisted on. The other fundamental flaw with it was that there was no Afghan government with the credibility or the capacity to fill up the space that counterinsurgency forces might occasionally create, that is security, that a government could come in behind to deliver services. But the Afghan government was riddled with corruption and it, it lacked legitimacy in the eyes of its own people. And so it's tragic, very hard in history in general for governments to defeat insurgents that enjoy a sanctuary like the Taliban uh, had. So it's one thing to, to say, well, this was um, always a difficult problem and, and it was a mistake to define the Taliban as um, the same as al-Qaeda. But it's another thing to have invested so, so much and created such havoc around a theory of warfare, counterinsurgency, that really looking back on it just seems like madness. I suppose the $1 million question, were there elements of success for the U.S. and their allies, you think? There, there were. I mean, I think when you measure um, what might have been gained after 2001, I think you start with the Afghan people. And despite all of the mistakes, despite the violence, despite the casualties, uh, the Afghan population uh, did make gains between 2001 and today. Life expectancy increased, access to education at all levels increased, female uh, education increased even more dramatically for the obvious reason that the Taliban prohibited it. You know, there's also something more informal that you come to know if you, if you visited Afghanistan. If you lived in Kabul or any number of other large cities around Afghanistan, there was a generation of young Afghans uh, that grew up like none before it. Cell phones, connectivity, a sense of belonging in the wider world, um, a new nationalism that was partly a reaction to Pakistan's role in supporting the Taliban, free media, raucous media, then social media. It's just astonishing how much change occurred in the country. And uh, it's what's so sad about this summer, uh, watching that generation come to terms with the potential loss of uh, everything that they had and that they thought they could retain. And really, you know, this generation, the kind of 9-11 generation, they hung in there despite all of these failures. Uh, because they could see that on their own terms, um, and, and often despite the United States and its allies, they were really gaining something that they, like many other populations around the world, that they, that they had yearned for. And yeah, now it's all in jeopardy. When it comes to security and politics in the country, we know that women have been impacted very much, but female characters are very few who've had a voice throughout this conflict. And the return of the Taliban seems likely to be bringing more disaster for Afghanistan's women. I think you're right. I mean, I think the last 20 years have offered pathways for women to speak and to hold office in Afghanistan. It manifested itself in the presence of women at universities and in ministries and leading uh, human rights organizations and NGOs and taking up seats in parliament. And while these gains are far from adequate, they do represent quite a dramatic change from, from the invisibility and repression and violence that women endured in uh, many ways during the Taliban era. I hear from Afghan women involved in human rights campaigning a complicated message. They don't want an American occupation of their country any more than any other Afghan uh, does. 
they're highly skeptical of the Taliban's capacity to make space for them or their daughters in uh, the next Taliban emirate. They're open to talking to the Taliban and they can see if the Taliban were acting in good faith about sharing power and building a more pluralistic Afghanistan, that they could talk about issues like children's rights, for example, that where they might be able to find some some common ground with the Taliban. But around issues like uh, women's access to work and um, freedom of expression, they've, I think, learned that the Taliban are not going to compromise about those issues. And, and so I fear that many women who accessed uh, universities and seized the opportunities of these last 10 or 15 years face a choice of either going back underground and surrendering their gains or leaving the country. Yeah, I mean, it sounds just like such a difficult position to be caught between what was clearly a very male-dominated war on terror and a movement like the Taliban. And um, one certainly fears for the future when thinking about the future of women's rights in the country. So how do you now see Afghanistan's future? Based on all you've documented, do you have any advice for those developing Afghanistan strategies and responses to the situation today? The only advice, um, I'm, you know, I'm not in the advice business, but as a journalist, I think covering this war across many phases, um, you know, the place to start is with a little bit of humility about what, what you can shape and what you should even attempt to shape. Steve Cole, thank you so much for joining us to reflect on the impacts of 9-11 in Afghanistan. Reckoning with 9-11. So that interview with Steve Cole has offered us rich insights into how international strategy struggled to handle the challenges of the context and to win over Afghan society and build stability. Now let's turn to another guest, Huma Saeed, an Afghan academic who's written extensively on peace, justice and women's rights in Afghanistan. Huma, can you explain for us what some of the impacts of the post 9-11 war were in Afghanistan and on the country's people? Sure. The immediate impact, of course, was quite dramatic, uh, looking at that from the point of view of the Afghan population, who had suffered under the Taliban rule for five years, uh, particularly the women of Afghanistan. Um, after all those years, people were very tired of uh, that regime, particularly all the restrictions imposed in terms of the basic rights of women who can, could not uh, study, could not work, could not go outside their homes uh, unaccompanied. So the immediate impact was this like sense of liberation. We are finally back to the world in a way. We found finally our liberty. And of course, then the Taliban regime fell. Um, in this sense of uh, somehow a different era continued until at least 2003. People were very hopeful. I had never seen that much hope in the eyes of people. They really felt that this was a new era, a new Afghanistan. Windows of opportunities were open for so many possibilities, uh, you know, work, peace, justice even. However, Unfortunately, unlike the aspiration of Afghan people, the conflict didn't end and it just took a different turn in shape uh, soon after, starting already as of 2005, where um, attacks started against civilians and the conflict really intensified between the Taliban and international forces in the Afghan government. And this went on and on and just got worse and worse. So when you talk about the violence and the war returning from about 2005, what were some of the factors, do you think, that made things break down and the violence return? Uh, many factors, many mistakes were done, unfortunately, right there at the very beginning. The Bonn Conference in, 2000, in December 2001 was really the conference that marked that end of one era and the beginning of a new era. The biggest mistake there was the lack of inclusion of the Taliban. The process was not a peace process because it did not include the Taliban. And there was a good chance to include them and then move on from there towards um, a broad-based inclusive government where then other measures such as transitional justice could be undertaken, including disarmament and demobilization and rehabilitation. Also, 
the other biggest mistake was the return of many warlords who had committed gross human rights violations. They relied on them in the fight against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda at the expense of forgetting what they had done in the past to the people of Afghanistan. There was no accountability whatsoever for their horrific crimes and atrocities they had committed. So these warlords returned to power. They got involved in massive economic state crime that included land grabbing, illegal mining, um, and uh, drug trafficking at really macro level, which all included, unfortunately, to fueling a uh, culture of Im Im impunity, basically institutionalizing a uh, culture of impunity until the, the point that um, the amnesty law was passed in 2009, and then it, it was a blanket amnesty for everybody. So. I think these were some of the major mistakes that took the conflict towards where it is and the country towards where it is today, unfortunately. I would like Huma to focus now a little on what has happened to women in the country. And it seems like from what you're describing that they were stuck amongst a series of evils, a series of very problematic actors. What can you tell us about that? Well, the first thing I wanted to say about the women of Afghanistan is that uh, very often the world thinks that, well, women of Afghanistan were all of a sudden liberated in 2001, post 9-11. Of course, the plight of Afghan women was very much highlighted during the years of the Taliban, you know, by the United States themselves, to the point that it became a cornerstone for the U.S. invasion, to for the justification of U.S. invasion in Afghanistan. Women of Afghanistan before the Taliban, I mean, before the, the civil war in the 60s and the 70s, were quite active in the society, in politics, in, in art, in, uh, in social life. Of course, when a powerful country, you know, superpower invades a country with the women's rights as one of the critics for the invasion, then it also makes sense to, to make it look like, you know, wow, you know, women of Afghanistan are finally liberated. Without uh, you know, thinking or remembering the history that, no, there was once upon a time, uh, you know, that 40% uh, of doctors were, were women or, you know, majority of teachers were women. They were everywhere. But anyway, after the dramatic, you know, years under the Taliban, the situation of women changed. And that back then really seemed dramatic. All of a sudden, they were able to get back their, you know, freedom and rights. An important progress also has been made. One cannot ignore that all the uh, support that was pumped by the international community towards uh, women's rights, women's empowerment, that helped, did help to an extent. I think one of the biggest achievements in the past 20 years was a relatively strong legal framework for women's rights and protection. It remained to be always problematic at various levels in terms of its implementation. However, it was considered quite a, um, a major progress and a milestone, especially uh, by many women's rights activists. Um, and apart from that, uh, I mean, women in the past 20 years have been pretty much present in, you know, in every sector in the society, politics, media, art, sport. And, you know, they were well connected with the rest of the world. They went abroad. The society really opened up. Uh, the Afghan society started to send girls to school also in some very rural areas. So there's no doubt that there has been an achievement. But what I want to emphasize here is that a lot of this achievement was possible also thanks to really fierce struggle, resistance, tenacity of Afghan women themselves. Even these days they say, well, we, we will not give up, we will continue no matter what. And I think this has been actually the main contributing factor in the post 9-11 achievements. These changes and transformations in women's freedom emerging in the context of quite a violent conflict to combat terror threats from Afghanistan and this problematic stabilization and state building project where you've talked about the Taliban needing to fight their way back in, the international forces fighting quite hard to remain in control and clear areas and then the Afghan state being captured by these warlords and, and criminal elites. Can you just tell us a little bit more about how communities living through this, what position they were in, how did they perceive the different sides in the conflict? In certain 
provinces, particularly rural communities like Helmand, where the international community was always uh, pretty much present, including, you know, many troops from the UK. And the war was always, you know, it was one of the zones always uh, in, in war, in conflict. Communities were affected very much by, for example, bombardments of the international uh, forces or that fight between the international forces, uh, well, international forces, Afghan government and uh, the, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. For example, many um, internally displaced people in Kabul, so many of them were people who had escaped these uh, bombardments. And obviously, from their perspective, the international forces, as well as the Afghan government, they were basically the, the main bearer of harm as regards to, to their suffering, as well as the Taliban, of course. In many situations, they would also not know exactly who did it. The main issue about the government's authorities was really an institutional form of corruption, pervasive everywhere. And this affected very much the service delivery on the ground. I've heard so many accounts that the soldiers who had to fight, and unfortunately they've given huge sacrifices, in many cases they didn't have anything to eat. They were forced to eat, for example, grass or leaves. Whereas on the government's list, their names were there. They had a budget for these soldiers. They had uh, money from the international community. But in so many cases, they would just, you know, get the money, make some kind of false lists, and they wouldn't deliver that to the to the people on the ground. The same happened with schools. You know, there was this big scandal about that they had given the list to the donors uh, about so many teachers and so many schools that actually didn't exist. So this lack of uh, delivery of basic services to people, especially in rural areas, then obviously affected very much the legitimacy of the government, a government that was not considered that legitimate because of all the, the, the frauds and problems that existed both in 2014 with the election as well as the one in 2019. So it really lost its legitimacy and acceptance among the population. This also had an impact uh, in turn even in some places where Taliban were welcomed. In some places, in rural communities, people were so fed up by the government, the corruption of the government, that uh, they preferred the services delivered by the Taliban in whatever form. One example is in the justice sector. In many Taliban-controlled areas where people could also travel a bit and take the cases to the government, but they actually preferred to do it with the Taliban because they were more efficient. They wouldn't take bribe as they had to, to do that in a government court. So, in a way, this, this paved the way also for the Taliban. But in terms of uh, Taliban, we know from the reports, for example, by the Human Rights Watch or the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission, that services there were, other services there were quite limited, like access to education, to girls' education. Uh, in many places, they would not allow girls to study beyond the, the, the sixth grade, or schools were burned. Unfortunately, um, Afghan people suffered from all sides, and no side exactly cared about the, you know, the, the, the population and what they really cared about and wanted. This leads me to, to another question, Huma, on whether those who tried to, inverted commas, stabilize the country, did they do enough for ordinary people, both in rural and urban areas? There has always been this rural-urban divide in Afghanistan, also because many rural communities, considering Afghanistan geography, they are quite difficult to reach because it's a mountainous country, like 70% of the country is mountain. So cities by far benefited much more from services, uh, you know, international aid, for sure. In Kabul, still, even if there is also, you know, a lot of corruption, but um, there is more surveillance, maybe, there is more you know, presence of international community, there is more control. It's not so easy for them to engage in corruption as it is in provinces. So that is one aspect. The other aspect is you know, very centralized Afghan government. This has been one of the biggest issues uh, raised by many uh, well, politicians as well as ordinary people, because all uh, governors of Afghanistan are appointed by the president, or at least used to be. And, and many were protesting this because they were saying, well, the president sitting in, in Kabul uh, does not know our local realities. 
and, and who can do best uh, as a governor, for example. So many were calling for a decentralized state in order to improve services, but it didn't happen. And that also was part of not being able to basically deliver government services, but also aid projects. You know, international community. There were, of course, these many international or international organizations. Some of them did a great job. For example, recently I was involved in the evaluation of one of these international uh, projects uh, that was specifically for women and girls empowerment, and they did a very good job as to reaching, for example, the population in rural areas. And the main reason for their success was. Basically, this taking this bottom-up approach, um, engaging with communities through communities, um, understanding you know really their needs, their demands. And some organizations uh, did this; they took this bottom-up approach, and it worked very well. It still feels like today, justice for Afghanistan's people and Af- Afghan women, Afghan communities, is as far away as ever. What do you think should be done from this point to get to peace, justice and reconciliation in Afghanistan? Indeed, unfortunately, justice is very, very far away from the reach of Afghan people. It has always been. In the beginning, in 2003, there was this this hope. There was actually a, a very good window of opportunity for some justice measures, for um, transitional justice mechanisms. But unfortunately, in practice, very, very little of that was achieved. In 2005, when the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission conducted a national survey with war victims, they found out that almost 70% of the Afghan people considered themselves direct or indirect victim of war. We, we don't have another updated survey, but I think that this probably this number probably has only gone up what war victims saw was the, you know, the return of warlords, the, the return of human rights perpetrators, the return of, you know, culture of impunity. Recently, when the negotiations started between the Afghan government and the Taliban, a movement, in a way, emerged uh, by war victims themselves, but also the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission and a number of civil society organizations were quite involved. They called it as the victim-centered justice, demanding the inclusion of victims and their voices and their demands and rights in the peace process. For a period, there was some hope, but unfortunately, uh, you know, as we know now, everything is up in the air. However, as somebody who has done research on this topic, I can say with some certainty that as long as victims' rights, especially at the level that we have in Afghanistan, the percentage of victims that we have, as long as justice demands are um, basically not addressed alongside peace, there would not be any reconciliation, there would not be any lasting peace. But should there be any kind of like, you know, serious government in the future, this has to be taken very, very seriously. Reflecting on all that has happened throughout these past 20 years, what lessons do you think should be learned by countries like the U.S. and other countries who have intervened in Afghanistan? Well, it's a huge question, obviously. I mean, the first and foremost is that war has never been and will never be the answer. One thing that we hope the world has learned after 20 years of war in Afghanistan is this. What was everybody is asking now that question, especially the people of Afghanistan? What was it all for? More specifically, what happened, you know, post 9-11 was uh, really the support um, given to the warlords, to the criminals, you know. They were already kind of disarmed, you know. They felt like they were disarmed. That was really the perfect moment to demand accountability. But unfortunately, they relied on them and made the situation much worse. This is something that especially the U.S. government has done, not just in Afghanistan, but also elsewhere. Likewise, and related to that, transitional justice initiatives were really important to be implemented in the country. But why weren't they implemented? At the end of the day, the main basically opposing party to transitional justice initiatives was the government of the U.S., always arguing that security first, then justice. So what we have today in Afghanistan is neither security and peace nor, nor justice. And this, I think, is one of the, you know, the biggest, biggest lessons learned from Afghanistan. Thank you, Huma. You explained so much to us and in such a clear way. Reckoning with 9-11 
So, as we've heard, the Afghan war is a very complex story, but it contains many of the elements that we will hear about in other war on terror battlegrounds in the rest of the series. Yeah, so one key and very obvious issue for me, the US and its allies used a lot of force to confront al-Qaeda and the Taliban, both at the outset. And with this unexpected but very tenacious opposition that arose over the next few years, obviously the Taliban could rely on outside help. And so they had to fight hard. The intense violence dragged on and it killed a lot of innocents. Yeah. And we heard a lot from Huma, especially on how very many Afghans did not enjoy real improvements in their lives. So many didn't really see anything improve for them. And there was a huge divide as well between urban and rural. And NATO partners were also themselves very much corrupt and predatory towards the population. There were many, many civilian, many accounts of civilian casualties. So although there were Afghans who benefited from the invasion and the effort to stabilise the country, a lot of people were caught in the middle between the sides and that left a lot of people in Afghanistan feeling traumatised and disaffected. And many of the Afghan people just simply never got a visibly better offer from the international community, also from the Afghan state itself, given the corruption of the institutions. Yeah. Another thing we heard from Humor was about some of the best assistance that was there was the stuff that really worked bottom up with communities on their own terms, but there wasn't enough mm. of that kind of thing. And and Steve mentioning, for example, and I suppose this is a very relevant overarching theme, is that objectives and exit strategy in Afghanistan were never really clear. And they they ended up relying rather rather than on, on a clear way of acting on the part of the international community, much more on wishful thinking about the nature and the, the growing capacity of the Afghan state and the security forces. Of the Afghan state. Yeah, and part of that lack of strategy and exit strategy was sort of leaving the search for a political solution till too late, till there wasn't really any leverage left over the Taliban to negotiate with. Yeah, these are all the elements that help explain why the Taliban was never defeated and have returned to power 20 years on. Great. So that's all from us on episode two of Reckoning with 9-11. I'm Larry Attry. And I'm Delina Gojo. Thank you for listening. This special war pod series, Reckoning with 9-11, is brought to you by Safer World with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. It is produced by The Podcast Company. Next time on The Reckoning, Overreach in Iraq. We explore the expansion of the war on terror into Iraq, how another initial victory turned into strategic failure, and how this impacted on Iraq's people. Listen, follow, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And for more reflections from guests and co-hosts on the consequences of 9-11 and where we go from here, check out their articles at justsecurity.org, produced in cooperation with Safer World.